I love to draw. And it's, it's as much draftsmanship as it is storytelling. And it's, it's, it's as much character delineation as anything else. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. When the New Yorker published Ed Corrin's first cartoon 60 years ago, it marked the beginning of a relationship that's come to define both the magazine and the artist. Corrin's cartoons feature hairy, long-nosed characters that poke fun at issues from the serious to the mundane, ranging from rural life to politics, consumerism, climate change, to encounters on the street, or in his case, on the dirt road where he lives in Brookfield, Vermont, his home since the 1970s with his wife, Curtis. He's been a volunteer firefighter in his community for over three decades. Corin, now 86, is one of America's most celebrated and beloved cartoonists. He's contributed some 1,400 cartoons to The New Yorker over the past six decades. He was Vermont's Cartoonist Laureate from 2014 to 2017, and his cartoons have also appeared everywhere from the New York Times to Vanity Fair to Sports Illustrated to numerous books that he's written. Fellow New Yorker contributor Bill McKibben says of Corin, quote, Sometimes one thinks of the cartoonist as making fun, but though Ed's drawings have long been the funniest thing in The New Yorker, it's because they're essentially kind, filled with the understanding that we're all trying hard. And that kindness, of course, is what makes him such a remarkable neighbor to all of us in Vermont. Close quote. Ed Corrin continues to make people laugh even as he faces a serious predicament. He has incurable lung cancer, which he was diagnosed with in 2020. I've known Ed for many years, but he has always politely declined my interview requests, protesting that he didn't think he was all that interesting. I begged to differ, and finally, last week, he agreed to talk. I found him in his studio at his home, doing what he loves, drawing cartoons for The New Yorker. Ed Corrin, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. A delight to be with you, David. <clears throat> Long been a fan of yours, and uh, in every way, outdoors and indoors. So I've been, you know, we've been buddies for a while, too. So it's a great pleasure to, to be doing this with, with you. Well, I've long been a fan of yours, Ed. Um, I want to start by, by addressing the elephant in the room, um, who has kindly stepped aside the elephant to allow us to talk. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling alternately wonderful and terrible. And, uh, you know, it's just a normal trajectory of ups and downs uh, during the day. But um, by and large, when there's some winds in my sails, uh, I'm feeling pretty good. And when I'm working, that's the other time I'm feeling really good. And it keeps me going, frankly. Um, I'm still drawing for the New Yorker magazine, uh, still doing um, my other alternative drawings that are now and prints. I'm not, I can't do prints anymore because that's an, that was done a long time ago. But at any rate, um, they're on exhibit at the Peabody Essex Museum, my tragedy comedy uh, side to me. 
And so comedy is for the New Yorker and tragedy for the existential crisis in the climate that we are now facing. And that's the subject with Steve Gorman, photographer, collaboration at the Peabody Essex Museum. It's, it's a wonderful show, in my view, uh, and put together by some wonderful people at the Peabody Essex Museum. Um, so all, I can't say I feel terrible, really. Most of the time I feel pretty good. I thought it would be nice for people who've known your work. You mm. have been a cartoonist. This marks your 60th year in The New Yorker. How did you get your start in cartooning? How did the, that end up being your thing? Well, it it was sort of an interesting... I mean, being a cartoonist means solitary, shy, uh, uncertain of oneself, um, but very attuned to others and to what's around. So when I was in high school in, in the 50s, um, I started doing, working with the publications that the high school had at the time, football catalogs or, or programs, basketball programs. Some uh, They had a newspaper every week, so I would illustrate and draw funny, funny drawings. And they were very popular, and I think the popularity made me somewhat less of a nerd and somewhat feeling shy and and uh, bereft um, in this high-powered high school I was in. And it took off from there, and it kept going on and on through college. Um, after, and then I got a little bit of encouragement from The New Yorker saying, we like your work, but you're not ready yet. Uh, so I kept at it. Um, I did a few other stints in uh, in printmaking uh, and drawing, and lo and behold, um, I ended up with an MFA, started teaching at Brown, uh, and became more and more a contributor to The New Yorker. But it started back in the 50s. So from... You began, you had your first cartoon published in The New Yorker in 1962, but you had been sending them cartoons for two years and getting rejected. Yes. Can you explain what kept you going? I mean, these days, rejection for a lot of people just has them pack their bags and do something else. Well, I may, I, I'm not sure because I was, I was secure in my job. And I was. Uh, what was your job? Uh, teaching at, at Brown, and uh, so and I love doing it. I mean, put it quite simply, I just love it, and uh, I'm, you know, irrepressible when it comes to seeing other people's folly and you know and uh, <clears throat> missteps and uh, and kind of haplessness. So I just kept doing it. Because I love to do it, and I kept kept submitting, and I kept in my mind saying, "We really like your work, uh, and we we just don't think you're ready, but we're we think you should, you know, just develop it more." And I was developing it more, and at one point, lo and behold, I got an approval of a very rough idea that I had sent in. 
because that's the process. You send in rough ideas. Many of them are, or most of them are rejected. Now and then, the thumbs are up, and um, that increase happened increasingly over time. When you send in an idea, are you just writing out what the idea is in prose, or are you actually sketching a cartoon? I'm sketching it. I'm actually sketching it. I mean, this is this. What you're seeing is a finished version of this, um, but this right in here is the sketch. You can see how rough it is, how un. How it I'm, I'm going to have you read story. the caption and and describe what you're depicting here. Well, it's a it's some you know new land owners of a country house, uh, presumably and. She, a fashionable woman, youngish woman, is saying to a gentleman farmer, um, we bought the, the place sight unseen, and then we were informed it came with nine endangered species. So uh, that's, that's the bare bones of what, to me, has become a much more complex story with detail and and it's fun to draw. I love to draw. And it's, it's as much draftsmanship as it is storytelling. And it's, it's, it's as much character delineation as and situation through in that world that they inhabit. As much that as anything else. And that's what intrigues me. That's what pleases me. That's what rewards me. Um, it may be too complex and it... The very, very roughly sketched out drawing is adequate. It will do. It will work. But not for me. What is the inspiration for your cartoons? Where do you go what, for your ideas? I'm, I'm looking at you <laughs> and everybody else I listen to who's, who I'm <clears throat> attuned to what they say. I listen. I read a lot. I pick things out of, uh, you know, anywhere. I'm, I'm sort of like a, uh, I have a, a net, like a butterfly net, and I just keep finding things or imagining, you know, what people are saying and why, how funny that is or what they've said in front of me. So it's it's just a huge um, catch basin of, of for ideas for me to play around with and have fun with. One New Yorker article about you described you as a superb noticer. Do you agree with that characterization? I tend to be distracted and notice a lot. Yes, I do agree. And uh, and I think, you know, to do this kind of work and to do to be a, somebody in who makes something out of nothing. I mean, a, a poet, a novelist, a short story writer, uh, any any of any anybody in who's who is in the arts when arts are in quote it's um is is that's what they're doing they're noticing and they're taking it in and they're processing it it's no different from any any other art form except that it makes people react somewhat differently but not that differently they, it makes people notice when did you move to vermont and why well, I bought this place in 1978. So I was looking for 
I was brought here basically through friends who had also bought a country place um, in Braintree. And I wanted to be close to them. Our kids were close. Um, and they uh, came back and forth. And I moved here full time in 1990, 1991, or 2000, sorry, not 19. <laughs> not, wait a minute, I'm right, I'm actually right. Uh, early 90s and stayed because my kids, who I was um, a co-parent to, uh, I had divorced by then, um, kept me in New York City because that's where their mother lived and that's where I went to school um, as well. So, um, and got a job, got jobs and so on. So once they graduated and went off on their own, I, I, you know, in 1982, Curtis and I got married. So it was probably about 1980 that, I, that I've been here full time. <clears throat> How much is Vermont a source of ideas for you? How much is your art place-based? You know, a lot of the New Yorker cartoons are, are kind of very urban and urbane. You know, they're sort of scenes of bohemian life. So talk about contributing to that milieu from this very um, rural spot. I'm looking out the window here in your studio. It's green for as far as I can see. It's mm. green everywhere. Yeah. Um, I, I basically, I think I'm an inhabitant of two worlds. <clears throat> One is that of New York, which is, and I've got a very intense memory of all of that. Um, when I was my early times there and my early work was based on the Upper West Side. I mean, oh, yeah, you're the chronicler of the Upper West Side. Is that? But it's that kind of uh, well, not terribly conventional um, milieu that I was living in. And Vermont has always had its own milieu that I've drawn from, and I oftentimes mix and match, <clears throat> like with this present cartoon. I mean, these are urban, urbanites who are either either climate refugees or they're refugees from their lifestyle in, in the city or they're uh, full-time employed independently or just the, the internet and virtual Learn, you know, virtual work has made it possible for them to be here. It's hard to tell, <clears throat> and it's. But I, I keep my whole finger on all these trends and tendencies. You know, it's it's uh, noticing, noticing everything, even in the city, from the city, remembering what that's like, and seeing what's. And I, I'm, I'm pretty much abreast of what's happening in New York. You know, like all these rooftop bars that intrigue me you know the highest rooftop bar in the world it's some mountain in the himalayas and you know i keep thinking about these and i just never stop what artists have been a particular inspiration to you or perhaps even mentors to you so many have i mean so many cartoonists 
the classic cartoonists of the New Yorker to begin with, and the, then again the classic satirists of all time that go back to the 18th, 19th century, in particular when newspapers uh, facilitated the dissemination of satirical drawings, political and otherwise. Um, so, and then all the, so the New Yorker cartoonists of the great masters I look to with great study in fact, and, uh, but I've absorbed it all. And then the world of art history, and I was an art history major, and I'm a great um, noticer of composition, of painting, going all, you know, everywhere, in which direction, you know, up and down the centuries. I, I looked, and I think it was... Uh, the, um, a Greek poet, and whose I think his name is George Seraphis, said, said, "You know, don't don't ask me what my influence is. I'm I'm like a lion who's digested all these lambs, <laughs> and I feel that way. I've digested all of this. I've eaten. of I've, I've tasted, sampled. God knows how many wonderful visual delights." Your artistic trademark are these beasts, mm. these creatures with long beaks and inevitably very hairy. Mm. Um, when I see that, I know there's a Corin or Corin mm. influence. Mm. Uh, tell me about these characters. Well, again, it's like um, they just evolved somehow as being funny, funny in relation to their human. Um, human counterparts, and oftentimes substituted for the human counterparts. So it um, it it's it's very unconscious when I choose to have beasts talking to each other. Because sometimes when that happens, I mean, it's so improbable <clears throat> that any of these creatures have language. And and understand that are you know kind of subordinates for us, and it makes it funnier. There's some cartoons that I've done, some drawings that just aren't funny enough without hair. And I love hair. I love to draw hair. I have a very my I can't suppress my hand, <clears throat> and and since the hand really is the key instrument here. Um, it keeps working. It keeps, you know, flying along. In the last year, well, cartoonists often get in trouble. They yeah. offend people. Mm -hmm. In the last year in Vermont, mm. there was a cartoon, a cartoonist depiction of uh, the female candidates running for Congress, and there was quite uh, an outcry over what were felt mm. to be exaggerated exaggerations that were either racist or sexist. And I wonder, what are your thoughts on this? Well, we're talking about the great Tim Newcomb, who has been doing wonderful work, of satirical work. And, you know, there's, there's, um, that's part of the joy of being a cartoonist and getting people so riled up over their own blindness and their own... Um, 
focus and political. And in these days, it's just a kind of off-the-wall, um, you know, kind of sensitivity. And and in in the days of great days of cartooning, people accepted that. They're being made fun of. They should then maybe re-examine what you're thinking. And how you, there was a story about a um, a drawing by Gleas Williams, one of the great early cartoonists. Um, at that point, he was a newspaper cartoonist in Philadelphia, and uh, he was told of a story of a, of an incident whereby a commuter train had to stop to. Um, uh, load into an ambulance a gentleman who had become so apoplectic <clears throat> about a cartoon he was looking at uh, that he had to go to the hospital. He had a heart attack. And and Gleas Williams was delighted. He said, that, that, it's a reaction to one of my works. It's an extreme reaction. He felt sorry for the guy, but he knew that his work was finding its its place and in, in making people think about certain subjects. Do you think, is it harder to be a cartoonist? Is it harder for you to do your work today, given these kind of sensitivities and reactions? Well, it is in the sense that uh, a lot of what I might do on that, you know, in that situ- situation would never be accepted would never be published uh, by the New Yorker, at least. Um, you know, seven days I applaud them for running that uh, because it's unflinching. You know, in the face of being right and correct and following the straight and narrow, and when the assumption, the assumptions that are governing our society at this point, um, and the New Yorker would not publish it, and in fact. You know, if, if I include people of color, women in certain roles, it's much better. Uh, and it's much more in, in that culture. And I have no, no cause to change that, just to reflect on it, to observe it, to make note of it. Mm. So are you self-censoring yourself? Would you call it that? What do you know you can't send into the New Yorker. Well, I guess you could, in extreme, call it censoring, but it's kind of being sensitive to what might work and might not, not, <clears throat> and what will be summarily put to the side. Um, so, and 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 again, with animals, you avoid all that topic. <laughs> That's the other the other interesting use of them. Uh, you know, there's just no no way of knowing. If you were a fly on the wall uh, in which uh, a classroom where your work was being studied, what do you hope students of your work would notice about what you're doing? Well, it depends on what kind of classroom. If it's, a, say, the Center for Cartoon Studies, which is training young cartoonists and comic artists, um, I, would, I would be very pleased that they t- we would talk about craft 
and about uh, observation and all the things we talked about, noticing, drawing, skills of that sort. And I wouldn't go into topics because that's, you know, the Center for Cartoon Studies is doing all kinds of wonderful things to combat, you know, close-mindedness, brochures and, uh, you know, uh, comic books for different groups of people um, to, to really illuminate all of this and to inform and start the conversation. I mean, like you, you having having this conversation. I mean, it's, you don't have any preordained ideas of where it should go and what I should be saying. You know, I, I'm, I just, you know, live in my very insular, personal world. The Center for Cartoon Studies in White River Junction has just established an Ed Corrin scholarship. Um, can you say a word about what this scholarship will do and what it means to you to have a scholarship named for you? Well, gosh, it's a great honor. It's a, you know, it's another, another just honor. I mean, it's a gold, gold, gold medal for to help a young student of comics, cartooning, at the center, uh, have helped them out. I give them a year or half a year or a, at, um, at a retreat um, that is run by my colleague, Harry Bliss, at The New Yorker. Um, and, uh, the, 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 and the talented, skilled, promising cartoonist, young cartoonist, student, really. So that's, that's a great, great honor for me. I, and I, I honor the school for, for thinking of it and, and just feel overwhelmed by it, really. We're spending the hour with cartoonist Ed Corin. This marks his 60th year as contributing cartoonist for The New Yorker. He has had thousands of cartoonists published in the magazine. Ed, uh, I would say something closer to 1,400. (laughs) (laughs) You're a stickler for detail. Well, I mean, it's not thousands for sure, and it's, uh, but it's, it's a, it's a body of work for sure. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate your attention to factual accuracy. Very modest, very modest. (laughs) You know, I noticed uh, you're sixth in terms of longevity of New Yorker cartoonists. Hmm. And you took umbrage when you were told you're sixth to hear that there were five people ahead of you. Yeah. Uh, Why is that? Well, because I'm... I'm six. <laughs> it's a it's an indication of age, and uh, but in truth, I'm I'm the only one of those six who is still contributing. Mm. Yeah, so I'm uh, I can't I can't give it up. I'm just in, too much in love with it. You know, I love my life. I love my work, and there, you know, I would hate to say goodbye to it. You have been a firefighter in Brookfield for. Over three decades, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- how did you get involved in firefighting, and why do you do it? Well, it's one of the great rewards of my life. And uh, why did I do I got involved because Don Hooper was then uh, on the fire department. 
And he said, hey, you, you know, you're around all the time. Why don't you join the fire department? And being the little boy, I have always been and fascinated with the destruction and uh, and the drama of 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 the social uh, fabric being rent aside and normalcy being torn asunder. Um, I joined, and I haven't been able to resign or retire. Even I'm still still think I'm. I'm active, although I'm not really. I can't do it anymore. But um, it's been an enormous reward for me. And partly, partly because um, it's, it's, it's very, very different from what I'm doing at the drawing board. For one thing, it's, it's brute force. For one thing, it's disaster. For one thing... You're confronted with a with a, a a problem to solve when you show up. You don't know what what you're what you're going to, and it is. You you figure it out. One figures it out. The department figures it out. Uh, the officers do, um, and then you proceed to just do it. Put out whatever it is, or deal with an auto accident, or control traffic, or, I mean, there's a whole range of things that fire departments do. Um, is there one fire that's memorable to you for the experience you had there? Um, yeah, there's one that was down on Route 14, and we just couldn't do it, couldn't save it, because there weren't enough of us showing up during the middle of the day. And you just watch this intact building uh, get consumed by flames, the wind driving it, very strong wind. And we, we didn't have the manpower or the mutual aid yet. It took them a while to get there with the water. We had no water, we ran out of water. And um, just one truck and uh, a small tank of water. So that was memorable because it was a sense of real loss on my part. <clears throat> it was a beautiful uh, late 18th, early 19th century house that was really lovely. And I just watched. And the the wreckage for people's lives, you know, the sifting through their memories and their daily life and the, and the just tragedy of it. Uh, that was memorable, you know, and I, uh, you know, and I kind of saw it. I was out for a run at that point, and the tone, the summons from Ella Tewksbury, the wonderful Ella Tewksbury, who was known throughout Randolph, who, alas, just passed away. Uh, she would be on the pager saying, we have... A fully involved structure, uh, or a structure fire, and she said where, and and I could see during my run this thick black smoke <clears throat> down in the valley, and I said, uh oh, <clears throat> this is not going to end well. Mm. So I hastened home, hastened down to the fire station, hastened to where the truck was already positioned. And just 
spent the afternoon doing that. But but what I was going to say is that once the once the situation is stabilized and dealt with, it's over. Cartooning, drawing, it's never over. You never resolve it in the same definitive way. And there's always questions, always second thoughts, always developments that keep happening, uh, almost by chance. Mm. And you keep thinking of and studying and saying, no, that's not right. Uh, that branch should be a little to the left or, you know, the composition is, is kind of awkward and on and on. I mean, things like that. So it's, 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 it's a counterpoint being on the fire department to what I do. And also I have these very small hand gestures. And that's brute work, really brute work. And um, big, you've got to be in great shape and physically very strong, none of which, I mean, I was in good shape, but I was not, I'm a small guy and I, you know, I did what I could do. So one of the, probably the first uh, Ed Corrin cartoons that I became aware of was a story you did many years ago with Bill McKibben skiing the length Mm -hmm. of Vermont of Mm -hmm. the Catamount Trail. It was for the New England Monthly. Tell me about that trip. Um, Well, it was a trip that he was asked, I was a skiing the catamount trail was he was asked to do it and at that time i had become not only a i mean a cartoonist but i started to do illustrations i you know got an agent got in touch with me and said would you do this would you do that so i bill asked me i said sure i'd love to do that with you because catamount trail always interested me and i loved skiing it uh, I didn't do the whole thing. I would do it in bits and pieces, and we didn't do the whole thing. We did about two, three days of it uh, up to the border of Canada, the last segment of the Catamount. And um, Bill at that time, who's now a, a di- dynamo skier, I mean, just a, just a truly skilled uh, Nordic skier, um, and I think even racer at some point, or he did. Um, anyway, he knew nothing about skiing. He, he was pretty green, and he there was a ford. We had to, uh, we had the, the the trail was tricky, and he it was a steep downhill, and then a steep uphill, and it was uh, like a gully. And he didn't know what to do, so he went straight down. <laughs> uh, I can did, tell this is not going to end well for Bill. And he just splayed himself out. It was, you know, for him, really humiliating. And for us, a source of great humor. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, <laughs> you know, do it that way. <laughs> uh, so, at any rate, that was that was the, my... My wonderful venture, and but we had a great time. Otherwise, he he was he had no problem. I mean, I love that they illustrated this story not with photos, which would be the conventional mm-hmm. approach, mm-hmm. but they sent you a yeah. cartoonist. Yeah, I mean, I think it was either Bill's idea or I can't remember whose idea it was to do it, but it was uh, I snapped at it. 
I mean, I couldn't imagine anything better than hanging out with Bill and skiing the catamount. The part of the catamount trail, I probably never ski. Tell me about this latest project of yours with uh, nature photographer Steve Gorman and looking at the climate crisis and also the combination of a photographer and a cartoonist. You're both presenting a visual depiction of a problem. Uh, so I want to also hear how that collaboration works. Well, the collaboration w- would not have happened without either of us, frankly, because Steve is a wildlife nature photographer who's worked with National Geographic and uh, done a lot of work for publications. Um, he's based in Norwich. Um, and his photos concern themselves with climate change up in the... Um, part of Alaska near the truly at the north slope where the that town where the um, Arctic wildlife wilderness is being eyed hungrily by oil producers and um, I can't remember the name of the town but it's right there right at the crossroads, crosshairs of development. And um, and at the same time, the, the climate, the warming of the climate has affected the life of the, the native, Indian, um, uh, the, you know, the indigenous people there, um, meaning that the, the, the polar bears, um, they're a source of, food, um, namely sea lions and um, fish, they can't reach it anymore from the the ice shelf because the ice shelf has retreated quite a a while, quite a ways. And they're stranded. And what they end up doing for nourishment for the winter is, I mean, the the indigenous... uh, People up there are allowed to wail. So there are, there are a number of whales <clears throat> they can reach with their boats that the bears can't. <clears throat> and um, seals are a big, big feast for the, for the bears, and they can't get them. <clears throat> they can't reach them. So uh, during the, the polar winter, where it would freeze over and you'd have an, a, a, an ice shelf upon which, where the bears could roam and feast. Um, So um, he had been up there photographing the plight of the bears, scavenging the skeletons of of the whales that had been authorized for, for, for the hunt. And so nothing... And I have been involved in just doing skeletal <clears throat> beasts, creatures. <clears throat> Nothing like in the New Yorker, but they're they're very they're unique. You know, they're 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 kind of alive, but they're dead. <clears throat> they're in, they're reduced to skeletons, and as a half, you know, to depict that very moment of climate change, because I'm I'm just terrified of it. Um, and as most people are, and I'm 
depressed and hopeless in many ways about whether we can pull ourselves out of the, the hole we're in, in that sense. Um, and so his, his sensibility, feeling similar, and mine, Matt, mix and match in our separate works. And that <clears throat> was these, the, <clears throat> we proposed the exhibition of his photos and my uh, drawings. I mean, they're lithographs and they're drawings, uh, prints and drawings, <clears throat> and uh, lithographs, etchings, drawings. And the Peabody Essex assented and took on the show, decided to show it. And so there it is at this very moment, uh, up until February, I think, um, until it runs its course. But I recommend it because it is put together brilliantly and it's a wonderful people who go to see it are moved and moved to thought and moved to feeling. Well, I hope it comes to Vermont as well. This is the the museum is in Salem, Mass. Salem, Massachusetts. I don't think it's going to travel mm. because of the pandemic and because of the logjam of traveling exhibitions mm. that was produced by the pandemic. What I know you as a person who is very engaged in and cares deeply about the world and the state of the earth. What concerns you most right now as you are now 86, I believe? I'm 86, yes. <clears throat> what concerns me is that, that the, we're, we're, we're hapless <clears throat> and uh, watching our society and civilizations and, you know, and the ramifications, political, cultural, uh, social, um, and uh, in every way in terms of weather and heat and cold and uh, how our weather is being affected by by what we do. I mean, we're the hand that is kind of committing suicide. <clears throat> and that concerns me a lot. And I'm concerned for my children and my grandchildren. <clears throat> and I can't say, well, I'm out of here. <clears throat> you know, good luck. I can't do that because there's just so many people who are going to follow me and, and suffer further because of this at their own hand. <clears throat> I mean, it really is putting a, uh, a blowtorch <laughs> or a heat pump to, into your mouth or you know, doing something that is detrimental to our life, lives uh, and will be ever more so. So that's that's what concerns me more than anything and, and depresses me. <clears throat> People are always asking, well, do you have any hope? And, and the only hope I can come up with is that we come to our senses <clears throat> and, and try to figure out, you know, how to reform our lives, you know, in terms of consumption and travel and fossil fuels and everything else that's destabilizing our lives. I mean, we're doing it to ourselves. I want to ask you about your cancer and your struggles with it, and what keeps you going? What gives you solace as you deal with this? Well, 
That's something I think about a lot. What gives me solace? A lot of things. Um, talking to you. I mean, I'm very pleased to do it and happy to, to just kind of go back in my life to to um, find a way to answer your searching questions. Um, my work, which I haven't given up, and I'm still drawing for The New Yorker, and I'm still doing these drawings, which I call down-to-the-bone drawings, because that's the title of the exhibition, down-to-the-bone. Um, and um, working with uh, various kind of funny projects, like working with Miranda Thomas, um, the potter, and, and, uh, or the ceramicist, who is, has, has a workshop and <clears throat> a sales room, I think, um, down in, oh, it's not, um, it's below Woodstock. It's um, down there. <laughs> I'll think, I'll remember the name. Of it. But, you know, I've, I've also realized, you know, my time is very limited. And um, that depresses me because I, I love my life. But I'm also, you know, I'm depressed by it to know that it's going to end. <clears throat> and uh, I don't want to leave. But sometimes things are so awkward. I mean, there are things I can't do for myself anymore. I am, I'm dependent on other people to do things for me. And that's, that's humiliating. I can't be out of doors, can't be on my bike, can't be on my skis, can't drive, can't do all the things that are normal life. And uh, that's, that's not so great. So I'll, I live with it for the other reasons. And uh, seeing old friends and just schmoozing is, is terrific. I love that. How long have you been dealing with the cancer? Um, since m the beginning of the pandemic, strangely enough. I mean, it was diagnosed, caught in an x-ray. I had surgery uh, the 20th of March, the last surgery the last of everything before the pandemic shut everything down so I can date it quite. And that thing shut me down. And uh, I was, I've been okay with it after the surgery for quite a while. And it's just gotten worse and worse and worse. And marches on, on little cat feet. <laughs> so it's... Uh, you know, I just have to be accepting. Yeah. Have you gained some wisdom from it that you didn't have before dealing with a challenge like this? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I've never been face-to-face -face with oblivion. So, I mean, what it's like not to be here. But I try not to think about it. Uh, it's counterproductive. Um, just, you know, I, I have a kind of positive view of this, um, you know, that uh, a stoic view of that there's nothing you can do about it. So you might as well accept it and, and deal with it in the best way you can. For the young people who are inspired by you and the work that you've done, 
what advice do you have for them, for somebody maybe just finishing college or starting out in the world? Well, I'm not sure I'm such a seer. <laughs> you know, I can only refer to my own life, but uh, seeing and observing that of others is uh, just, just you know, find your own voice. Find, you know, it's, that's what I tell cartoon, young cartoonists, you know, what really is yours. Uh, don't accept, you know, situations that are, you know, where you have to work for so many decades of your life at something you really don't like. Uh, but just just that, your voice should tell you that. <clears throat> and don't hesitate to change if, if it's not what you want. I mean, it's, I'm not a seer by any means. And, uh, and I, you know, to be a, an advice giver to the young is, uh, is almost sui generis. And, uh, you know, they don't need my advice. I'm an old guy. And their world is entirely different and somewhat incomprehensible to me. You know, the, the plugged-in digital world. So I, I'm the last one to give advice. <clears throat> you know, this, this fossil <laughs> giving advice. Uh, so I, I answer your question with great hesitancy <clears throat> and no small amount of, uh, of hubris. Well, Ed Corrin, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation and for all you've given us all these years in your art and your thought and your wisdom and wish you good luck as you continue on your health journey. Thank you, David. And I'm honored to be talking to you. Truly honored. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.